Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 30 with Rob Harvey, the Director of Energy Infrastructure, Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Technologies with Hydrogenics. Hydrogenics is a Cummins company now and it's the worldwide leader in designing, manufacturing, building and installing industrial and commercial hydrogen generation, hydrogen fuel cells and large energy storage solutions. Rob, uh, welcome to Energy Radio. Thank you. It's uh, great to have you, and uh, we've. I personally have kind of watched the hydrogenic story and and uh, its kind of different incarnations as it's grown, and so it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, I know you're a bit. You've been a big part of that over, I think, eight years or so. So um, glad to have you. Why don't you start, uh, Rob? Uh, if if we can jump right in and maybe just uh, give us your origin story, uh, as if you were a comic book character or something, and kind of walk us through. You know, how do you arrive where you are today in terms of, you know, navigating through the, the world of energy and ending up at uh, hydrogenics? Sure. Um, Matt, I, I've worked in the energy sector most of my career, starting at Imperial Oil as a, a man, management science analyst. And uh, and I worked as an energy consultant with uh, Oliver Wyman and PHB Hegler Bailly, which was a, a boutique strategy consulting firm, working primarily with electric utilities. And I worked on three startups in the alternate energy space, including uh, waste energy and uh, and biogas, and to hydrogenics, where I've been um, business development for the power to gas sector and uh, responsible for strategy, advocacy, and done a lot of work on securing funding and operating contracts for demonstration projects. Um, One of my original assignments was developing a business case for power to gas, and it's been great uh, to be with hydrogenics as part of this uh, significant growth and emerging industry of electrolysis and seeing how it's uh, how it's developed. Uh, the renewable hydrogen space is large and, uh, in, and growing for fuel cell electric vehicles and for blending with natural gas and, uh, and producing green chemicals. And uh, along the way, I was also a founding member of the Energy Storage Canada and uh, served on the board, uh, including board chair for three years. And that uh, is a very active uh, trade association that's been really instrumental in 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 moving forward the um, the the regulatory environment and getting uh, funding for demonstration projects uh, here in Ontario, especially. Cool. Well, a, a couple things I want to unpack there before we get to the hi- hydrogen part. That energy storage uh, piece of of that the the group that you started. I mean. Energy storage has become almost mainstream and, you know, it's kind of the new, in some ways, the new solar PV or, or it's getting to that point. But sounds like you were a bit more on the leading edge of the curve. Like what, what vintage is that? Like how, how, you know, how early were you guys and, and what were those early days like for energy storage? We started in uh, in 2012 with uh, with five companies and uh, five people. And uh that was, um, and it was interesting, there were a number at the time, that was quite early for energy storage, but there were a number, there still are, of uh, Ontario technology companies that made up um, the, the founding members of different technologies like flywheels and um, compressed air storage and hydrogenics with, uh, with, with power to gas. And um, it's, it's, been a, it's been a very, you know, very interesting evolution for that. Um, as uh, as memberships grown, and the early days with the Ontario government, um, we really impressed upon them uh, rather than just studying this and looking further. Let's learn by doing. Mm. And with the support of the Ontario government and the ISO, there was uh, two procurements totaling 50 megawatts yes. of uh, energy storage projects to help manage the grid. So these are things like regulation services and uh, voltage support and a competitive bidding process and we were fortunate hydrogenics to get funding and win one of those uh, projects for um, providing 2.1 megawatts of regulation service um, in what became the Markham Energy Storage Facility with Enbridge. Okay now <clears throat> that that association is or that group is, is is I would imagine technology agnostic like it's a, a big umbrella in terms of energy storage? Absolutely and it's um, it includes, um, you know, technology companies, project developers, um, gas and electric utilities, large large players, um, consultants, uh, legal firms, um, and and a, and a growing um, supply chain as well. It, re- it really represents the whole 
a value chain of, uh, of energy storage. And when we, when we talk about energy storage in kind of the, the common vernacular or some of the kind of scratching the surface, those who aren't intimately involved, I think there's always, you know, a link between that and, and batteries, you know, rightly or wrongly. How, how do you see the industry specific to, you know, the big umbrella of energy storage? You know, is there enough, like we always often talk about technologies and who picks winners and losers. Is it the market? Is it government policy? Um, you know, it's, I think batteries are like solar because they're easy to understand, whereas compressed air or hydrolysis or, you know, flywheel, they're, they're a little bit more technical. How do you navigate that kind of ensuring that every, every good technology has a space in, in the broader marketplace? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, Matt, if I go back to, you know, 2013, if I went to the, um, Energy Storage Association in the U.S. went to their conference. There was a tremendous diversity of different, uh, you know, energy storage technologies um, in the booths. Um, you know, including the ones you mentioned and thermal thermal storage and things like that. Right. Um, in later years, there was there's been a um, I wouldn't say a shift, but there's been a lot more of that space taken up with uh, lithium ion um, battery energy storage uh, solutions. And the reason is um, for, you know, for stationary um, energy storage applications, it's riding down the cost curve of lithium ion battery reductions for battery electric vehicles. So in terms of the, the, the price points for, um, for large scale bat lithium ion battery solutions, it's accelerated and moved far faster than a number of other technologies. I still think there's a space for in longer duration storage for some other technologies um, like like compressed air. There's also uh, flow batteries mm -hmm. um, that that are that are good, but it's the, the it's the classic challenge. If you you you've got to you've got to develop a product, you've got to bring the product to market. You need a demonstration plant, and then you need to scale up. You need manufacturing scale to to reduce your cost structure to be uh, to be competitive. So. It'll be interesting to see how it um, how it plays out, but today the predominant um, battery energy storage solution is uh, is lithium ion. Yeah, and, and you know ultimately it comes down to what you mentioned right off the hop, the the business case, right? You know, can we get the technology pricing to a point where there's a business case that can drive you know project development, which at the end of the day is all that really matters. So um, cool. Well, thank you for. Um, you know, going into some of that energy storage thing. And the other piece that, that I picked up on um, was you mentioned biogas. I'm curious only because I uh, I cut my teeth uh, in biogas in a big way. Uh, what, what was your exposure to the biogas industry that you mentioned there? Well, it was a, um, a startup project using uh, to look at a, um, a combined heat and power application using um, uh, wood pallets as a uh, as a feedstock in a um uh, a mid-temperature uh, pyrolysis uh, process to um deliberate the uh deliberate the biogas and generate uh, clean uh, clean power um and uh, at the time the, the the startup i was working with we were trying to uh qualify for the um under the fit program Mm -hmm. uh, for these projects and and get funding um, funding for first uh, first project. So the the idea was novel, and uh, a couple of fellows I were working with were taking technologies actually from the automotive um, industry for uh, paint drying. So they they were out taking a, a proven technology and uh, and applying it. Um, the unfortunate part was uh, when we started, um, you know, wood pallets were they pay you to take it off your hands. So not only was the feedstock free but you would get an income stream from it. And over time, people started to realize the value of the wood pallets and that became uh, a revenue stream for companies that were recycling. So we weren't successful in getting that project off the uh, off the ground, but it's um, it's an interesting space. And I think uh, there there's, people say there's limitations to you know, the amount of biomass and, and biogas, that's true. Um, but if we, if we used it, uh, effectively, and, and the same with waste to energy, um, that it would be a useful contribution to the overall energy mix. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that certainly that uh, fuel supply piece is, has it was always the you know the difficult part. I remember I was doing a lot of biogas in in agricultural uh, environments with large dairy farms, and kind of it, it occurred to me pretty quickly that you know fuel supply was important, but the projects were really being funded on the balance sheet of the the quota and the land that these dairy farmers owned, and um, you know they got a fit contract, so they had the financing and they had the offtake agreement, but these projects really only thrived when they had the feedstock agreement. And, you know, if you build a plant and then somebody else builds a plant a little bit closer to where the feedstock is generated, you're a little bit euchred because driving costs uh, add up in a hurry. So that whole on the biomass biogas side, that feedstock part of the equation is just so, so critical um, and, and sometimes underestimated, I think, early on in a, in a project's life. Um, cool. Well, thank you no, for Thank you for uh, appeasing my interest in, in biogas. Um, so let's move to the, the topic of the day um, and hydrogen. But first, hydrogenics, you've been there uh, over eight years now. Uh, can you give me a bit of the history of the company and some of the kind of key milestones and transitions that they've uh, undergone to become a big player that they are today? Sure. Yeah, hydrogenics was formed in 1996 by Pierre Rivard and Joe Carnelli. And Joe is still with us as uh, Chief Technology Officer. Um, I've learned that the first product that they got into was a fuel cell tester. Mm. At that time, in the late 90s, companies like General Motors and Toyota were getting into, into fuel cells. I mean, it's taken a long time to get to where we are today, but the initial product development by the automotive companies was back in the late 90s. And Hydrogenics identified a product need for a fuel cell tester because they were, all these companies were developing fuel cells and providing services to monitor the performance um, of their tests and, and provide that. And what happened was we learned so much from, these, uh, from the services to the auto manufacturers that we decided to get into the fuel cell space ourselves. So, uh, um, and we immediately lost our, our fuel cell test customers, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that um, that, that, that hydrogenics developed that way. And, and indeed the insights that they learned developed a, a low pressure um, you know, fuel cell stack that was uh, that no one, had, no one had ever done. And in terms of the, uh, a number of the features, integrated balance of stack, the performance of it um, is, uh, is still a world leading uh, product today. Hmm. And, uh, uh, and it's interesting that the, the, the aspect of, um, well, I guess pre-COVID, when we had uh, many visitors and coming to our plant to see the operations and so forth, I always make a point of mentioning when we look at the test stands, and this is for equipment that's tested before it's uh, being shipped, and we also have long-term test stands. So the, the testing portion is still part of our DNA. So we do long-term tests on membranes um, uh, for uh, degradation, and uh, a large part of our R&D is, is tied with the, uh, the testing. Our core markets are, are really twofold. We, we're in the, the PEM fuel cell power module business for heavy duty mobility, that's buses, trucks, and commuter trains, and electrolysis for hydrogen production. And there's two sub-markets there. One is a traditional industrial um, hydrogen production market. And this is a very mature business and we've been in it uh, uh, a long time for customers in places in the world where they cannot be readily served by an air liquide or air products to deliver hydrogen to the door. So it's a sort of a make or buy decision. And if you've got a, a float glass plant or electronics plant and you need hydrogen, it's cheaper for you to buy a turnkey electrolyzer solution and, and, and set it up in your manufacturing plant and, and produce hydrogen. The second electrolysis market is uh, what we'll be talking about more is the you know, power to gas and the large scale renewable hydrogen for meeting demand of uh, fueling fuel cell vehicles and um, uh, blending with natural gas. Okay. When I think of um, you know some uh, some examples in this, uh, just to give you your audience some color on this, we we work with the uh, the OEMs and uh, integrators on the on the fuel cell side, and uh, we developed the fuel cell concepts for Alstom's Karate Island, and uh, that's the world's first zero emission uh, fuel cell electric train. That's a really exciting project because, um, and it's been in service since September of 2018 in Germany. Hmm. And the reason it's exciting is for a passenger on that train that's been in service, 
there's no difference between because the the Karate Island is based on the the Lint train, and if uh, if you uh, if you if you're in Ottawa and you've taken the the OC Transpo, you would have seen the Lint, the diesel version of of the Lint. But in terms of the seating capacity, the top speed of 140 kilometers an hour, um, the range, the everything everything is the same, and that's really the 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 value the core value proposition of a fuel cell electric vehicle is that you get a zero emission solution that has all the attributes and performance attributes for a customer or for an operator that you expect with uh, with diesel. Hmm. And, um, and that's been a very exciting project. Um, we've so um, just to dwell on that fuel cell piece. So so your your target market is predominantly uh, transportation as opposed to stationary uh, applications. Uh, that's correct. We we do we have done some uh, some work in projects and uh, with uh, backup stationary power. Oh yeah. Um, and and one uh, pilot project with um, baseload uh, power plant. Hmm. Um, but the, the 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 characteristics of uh, the PEM fuel cell are ideally suited um, to uh, to a mobility application because it can quickly ramp um, up and down with the cycle times. Some of the things, some of the characteristics of our fuel cells, for example, that we can, um, they can be frozen, right? So it's uh, self-draining, you won't damage the stack. And for Canadian and Northern climates, that's um, uh, that's important. So we've seen a lot more growth on the mobility side than the stationary side. And the, the uh, mobility side, is it a gaseous fuel or is it a liquid fuel or what? it's a gaseous fuel? Uh, today it's uh, it's gaseous fuel. Yeah. Hmm. So it's it's a compressed natural gas that drives that that train that you're talking about in Germany. No, it's hydrogen. So you're you're filling the train up. It's a fuel cell train. So you're you're filling the train up with um, with compressed uh, compressed hydrogen, and then the fuel cell is uh, converting the hydrogen into um, into electricity with a, a electrochemical process. Gotcha. Okay. And that and that's the that's the PEM process that you. What, what does that stand for? The PEM. Uh, proton exchange membrane. Okay, cool, awesome. So, is there a, is there a play where you guys stack your technologies? Like, there's a fuel cell, but before that, there's a hydrolysis piece. Like, do you see that as part of your value chain? Maybe not now, but maybe in the future. It's interesting you ask the question, Matt. There's there's a lot of people that um, when they they discover hydrogen, they get very excited about it because they say, oh, we got the pieces. If we have a renewable power already, then we can use electrolysis to produce hydrogen, and then we can store it, and then we can bring it back as a fuel cell. And there are other other technologies that, that do a better job, frankly, than um, sort of the end-to-end power-to-power. Um, so despite the, the initial interest, when you start looking at the economics, the real strength of um, electrolysis in the power-to-gas application is taking surplus clean hydro and renewable energy when we don't need it in nuclear in Ontario and transforming it into a fuel that can be used for vehicles or for, for heating at a later time. So the, the, the proposition for, 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 um, for power to gas is really being that, um, that interface between, between energy silos. And that's really where it's, where it's compelling. The same is true when you look at, you know, what's the value proposition for fuel cell vehicles? It's zero emission vehicle that has all the performance characteristics of a conventional vehicle. Mm-hmm. And uh, trying to marry the two together, um, you uh, you still have benefits, but they're not as compelling as electrolysis or fuel cell vehicles on their own. Hmm. Interesting. I love that phrase that you used, that you are the interface between energy silos. I think a lot of times, you know, we've seen that, um, you know, in that we talked about the biogas space, right? There's all these silos, there's energy, there's environment, there's agriculture, or even within energy, there's transportation, there's there's stationary, and, and you guys can be a bridge between that. I just, I love that image of being able to because as our markets get more dynamic, we're going to have to figure that out. We're going to have to figure out how to bridge, you know, an, an electrification. And there's all these different aspects that, you know, the more we can bring those dynamic elements together, uh, the better our infrastructure is going to be, right? Absolutely. And and it'll, it will improve the efficiency of both. I mean, right. when you look at the um, 
what's the strength of the gas system is very large scale energy storage um, and and having the ability to tap um, for you know winter heating loads um, significant uh, I think it significant uh, amounts of power and a very you know on on demand um, the the electricity sector that has uh, probably the biggest potential for renewable energy of any of any sector we talked about biomass it's a great source but you we can do a lot more on uh, on the renewable side on the for producing electricity than we can on um, biogas for example but if we can take the surpluses of that if we can be be smart about using using that resource to produce um, liquid and gaseous fuel um, then uh, renewable fuel in terms of the overall energy system, we're we're being more efficient. And in terms of the hydrolysis piece, do you see the? You, you, my sense is you can go multiple ways with the hydrogen that comes out the back end. Is the highest value proposition from both a fuel cost displaced and a uh, carbon intensity uh, displaced is transportation kind of the, the big value as opposed to um, you know injection into the existing pipeline or are they are they comparable or they have different places like how do you how do you see that playing out in the market the biggest um, the biggest uh, opportunity for for decarbonization in terms of um, you take your kilogram of, of, of hydrogen is in the heavy duty mobility space. Okay. And there's um, there's two reasons for that. One is the the, the carbon footprint of diesel is uh, is the highest. It's uh, next to coal is the the highest. But also that the um, that the fuel cell electric drivetrain is about twice as efficient as a diesel drivetrain. Mm. So not not only are you um, displacing a high carbon fuel you're using, you need less fuel. You're sort of getting a two X uh, multiple on, on that displacement. Um, there's also uh, you know, decarbonization of natural gas. And there's, there's lots of companies like Enbridge are working on a pilot uh, project for that right now. And uh, BC is uh, looking at regulations, I believe for, you know, 15% renewable gas, and that would include hydrogen, but different, uh, different sources, but natural gas is a much, uh, a much cleaner fuel. With a much uh, smaller, um, you know, carbon footprint, so displacing natural gas has a benefit as well, but it's not as high. Right, right. And is there a competition in that heavy-duty mobility space? I, I, I honestly don't know a lot about it. Is there a competition in terms of, you know, powertrain technologies as we progress to a cleaner fuel? And what I mean by that is, you mentioned hydrogen, and 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 so I think you're putting compressed. Like, like the train, you're putting compressed hydrogen into a hydrogen fuel cell, which is the powertrain then for that heavy-duty mobility. Is there also a, a parallel competing move towards a, a compressed natural gas, which is a different powertrain? Like, are there, are there a couple different ways we can skin this cat in terms of cleaning up uh, um, heavy-duty mobility? Uh, yes, it's interesting. Um... Um, maybe I'll just do a quick segue here um, with, uh, with with Cummings. You mentioned from the top, we're now um, part of Cummings. Cummings uh, acquired Hydrogenics in uh, September of 2019, hmm. and we're um, we're part of the Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Fuel Cell Technologies Group now within uh, within Cummings. If you look at Cummings' offer to, and they've obviously um, got a very wide range of customers in the uh, in the mobility space. The, the offer is to be able to offer a powertrain of choice. So everything from clean diesel to uh, natural gas, there's a joint venture with Westport uh, in Vancouver hmm. for a natural gas uh, um, engine to um, you know, hybrids and battery electric vehicles and fuel cell electric vehicles. So um, as a company now, we're not, um, we're not you know, picking winners and losers. Um, we are giving customers what they uh, what they need and are ready to move to, um, you know, lower emission solutions uh, as, as, uh, as companies and fleet operators, especially for us, um, evolve. Well, I love that. And, yeah, I, I was reminded the other day of the story of um, 
Kodak and how you know they had they owned the photography space and particularly the the film space. And I had forgotten. I'd heard the story before, but I'd forgotten that somebody internally at Kodak comes forward with digital camera technology. I think in the late '80s, early '90s, and and they they push it aside and they say, no, 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 we're never doing that. We're gonna we would cannibalize our own, um, you know, our own film, you know, high margin film business. And and you know, we all know how that story ends. It doesn't end well for Kodak. Whereas, right. you know, what's interesting as I listen to you tell the Cummins story is that. Um, they, they, as a recip engine, you know, company at their core clearly have taken an alternative route and they've said, listen, let's, let's figure this out. Let's broaden the portfolio. And, and it may ultimately cannibalize, you know, their recip engine business. It may take some time, but at least they're looking at other portfolio uh, technologies that could, you know, continue to propel them forward, uh, pardon the pun. Uh, as the market emerges, and it, it sounds like that's their approach: is they want to make sure they have at least one or two of the, you know, technologies as they move into the future, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And and they've invested in uh, in other um, uh, uh, battery electric vehicle, mm. uh, a powertrain, and uh, and hydrogen uh, technology companies as well. Cool, cool. Well, hey, uh, Rob, let's take it kind of back to. Um, I don't know, grade 11 chemistry, perhaps like walk us through, you know, the first principles of what you're doing in in hydrolysis um, in terms of, you know, what's at the core of that for those of us who maybe have heard the term, but aren't 100 percent sure of, you know, what that energy conversion is that's happening at the heart of your plant. Right. Yeah, uh, it's a good reference to uh, high school chemistry. Um, if you remember, like electrolysis is splitting water to liberate the hydrogen and the <laughs> oxygen, and running an electric current through um, uh, through water. And uh, in high school, I think it was uh, test tubes that we were over the, the the cathode and anode to to collect the gases. And one uh, one tube was uh, was was twice the size of the other. And um, it's interesting. And so that was the very first technology and it's at zero pressure, right? It's at atmospheric pressure. And there are some companies that still sell, make and sell um, atmospheric um, electrolyzers today. Um, we have come a long way though, in terms of scale and efficiency. Um, and to give you an idea today that hydrogenics um, um, electrolyzer stack that is uh, in the Markham facility, um, it's the size of a bar fridge it takes uh, you know 1.25 um, megawatts of power in that very very small space, wow. and uh, it's producing 250 normal meters cubed per hour of hydrogen, you know, at its nameplate capacity. So um, uh, the, the the principle the principle technology is the same has been around a long time, but we've um, we've scaled it up, and the and the and the potential uh, throughput for it has increased dramatically. And that's because it's being done under at a certain uh, pressure range. Is that how you get the density out of it? Um, yes, it, it, it's uh, that's part of it. A pressurized stack. Um, our stacks, the the outlet pressure is 30 bar uh, that we're producing uh, producing the hydrogen. Okay. But it's also the um, electrolyzer, an electrochemical device. So in terms of being able to manage very high current densities. And um, as well as the um, the heat management on on a very high scale, we're able to push and produce a lot more hydrogen um, in in a, in a in a much smaller stack. And, and is that because you figured out is there a metallurgy piece or a, an aspects of design in terms of getting enough current in there? Are, are there are there other in addition to pressure? Is there those other pieces that is part of the perhaps the IP of, of, of what you guys do that's allowed you to get where you are. I no that is in fact true and, and it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm at the business development and systems engineering end of uh, end of things, so I sort of work at the 10,000 foot level. But my colleagues who actually design this equipment, um, we have a common uh, there's. A common R&D group that does both the development on the PEM fuel cells and the PEM electrolyzers. Okay. And a lot of the lessons that we learned on the fuel cell side, we actually applied to electrolysis side, and um, that is 
one of the reasons that we've been able to um, come develop the, the, the largest, uh, highest power density stack uh, for that. Um, so that's a high level answer to your question. I mean, some of the, the details for that I'm not as familiar with, but the, the, the biggest things are managing current density over a large active area within the stack mm. and the thermal management and the, the cooling of that and how we um, integrated the, the cooling of the electrolyzer stack because it's not 100% efficient. You've got about um, uh, 20, 22% waste heat in, a, you know, in, in an electrolyzer. And you've got to um, you've got to manage that. And it's interesting you're splitting water, um, so we're using we're using the water for cooling as well as part of that uh, part of that process. Oh, cool. Um, and and the and the fuel cell process is, I mean, it's it's more complicated, but it's in some ways, it's from a chemical level, it's kind of the reverse. Like you're putting hydrogen in, you're getting electricity out, right? Is it, did I understand that correctly? That's correct. And and the way the the, the membrane is uh, it contains uh, is coated with a, a catalyst, a precious metal catalyst, and it is drawing. What's happening is you've got the hydrogen coming in, and it's drawing the hydrogen proton across the membrane. That's why it's called a proton exchange membrane. And that action of the the proton coming across the membrane is generating a current. Okay. So that's that's what a fuel cell is doing, and there's no there's no moving parts. It's an electrochemical reaction that is creating an electric current. And on the other side, the um, the only output from um, you know from a fuel cell is uh, is the power and water. So oxygen is um, uh, combining with those uh, hydrogen protons to produce water on the other side. Hmm. Hmm. Cool. And on the piece of water back on the hydrolysis, is there a, you know, is there a specific fuels or fuel, not a fuel spec, but a water spec in terms of, you know, you have to get a certain uh, purity. Like, do you have a water treatment on the front end of this? Or, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, we talked about some remote locations that, um, you know, put in your skids for, you know, making hydrogen for process needs, like how tight are the requirements around water quality and I guess water volume as well? Yeah, they're, um, they're high actually. Um, one of the characteristics of um, an electrolyzer is that it's, um, I'll talk about the water, but very quickly, it's a, uh, requires uh, DC power. So it's uh, if it's connected to the grid, you need a rectifier to produce DC power, and on the water side, you need deionized water. So you you definitely need a, a water treatment plant, and it's usually a reverse osmosis plant. Uh, typical applications for electrolysis are um, tied to the municipal water um, system for that. Um, it is possible to have it connected to, if it's a remote location, to uh, a river or something like that. But typically, you have a, a very good water spec, and you can make sure that your water treatment is designed to um, to uh, meet the meet the required spec given the city city water input. Do you have a sense of? You mentioned, you know, over a megawatt of electricity. You mentioned two hundred fifty. Uh, normal meters cubed of hydrogen. What, what's the just a round number? What's the water flow into a system like that? Out of curiosity, it's uh, nine liters per kilogram. Nine liters in per kilogram of hydrogen out. Yes. Okay. Cool. And that's really just based on the stoichiometric um, uh, split. Right. Right. It's uh, it it, tr it truly is grade eleven chemistry doing the the mol the molar balances and I've I've forgotten it all now, but. Uh, that's good. That's yeah, I, I, Matt, I'd forgotten it too. And and early my early days in hydrogenics, I was spending time doing molar mass equations and stuff wow. like that, and, and dusting it off. But um, good on. It really comes. It comes down to that. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's great. You can uh, certainly uh, walk the walk the talk. So let's. You know, you've mentioned a couple times your uh, your project, uh, the Markham Energy Storage Facility. Kind of walk us through, you know, what what that site is, kind of what the impetus is. I think you're working with Enbridge on that. Um, I think it's kind of a demonstration, but it's 
kind of maybe bigger than demonstration. So maybe just give us a glimpse into that particular project. Love to. Um, most of the most of the work that we had done before this project was in Europe. Um, the the concept of power to gas was first developed in Europe, and there was extensive work on um, upwards of 35 demonstration projects for different applications uh, in Europe. And I think we'd supplied equipment to about a dozen of those uh, projects. Um, but there was no uh, real reference, large reference sites, multi-megawatt reference sites in North America. And uh, partnering with Enbridge, Enbridge, um, Enbridge Gas, real interest in alternative energy and was very interested in getting into hydrogen as well. So we set up this joint venture to um, build the, the, the Markham Energy Storage Facility. And we had a couple of design objectives. Um, one was it would be the first indoor installation because we recognized for larger scale applications, um, you, you don't wanna just be shipping containers. Right. Reasons. One is the the cost, because essentially you've got that integrated balance of plant for every plant that you're shipping, and it makes more sense to have economies of scale for that. That's things like the water treatment we talked about. And the other reason is the footprint. That if you've got containers, the the footprint for a 20 megawatt or 50 megawatt plant is going to be a lot larger. So the design objective was to do an indoor plant and develop the architecture for a five megawatt um, design. And uh, Enbridge's um, view the, the partnership um, interest extended beyond that also to um, to get into um, hydrogen blending in the natural gas uh, grid. And the site was chosen. It's at the Enbridge Gas uh, Technology and Operations Center in Markham. Um, it was uh, one of the IESO projects, and it's been uh, operating since uh, May of uh, 2018 and providing regulation service to the ISO. So the plant actually is uh, remotely operated and we're dispatched by the ISO. So it sends us a signal every two seconds within the 2.1 megawatt range, contracted range of, uh, of service. And we modulate the load and output of the, of the facility to, to match the signal. So it's using this along with um, many other energy storage uh, um, providers along with hydro and, and, and gas plants to do the sort of the second-by-second second balancing of supply and demand uh, of electricity in the province. And, and you're providing, not to get too uh, technical or geeked out here, but you are providing load management services. You're not providing like frequency or voltage stability. You're providing load management to ISO? We're doing both. Oh. What we're under contract for is providing frequency regulation. Okay. But the way that the way that we manage that as a as an electrolyzer, and there's a small fuel cell as well, but the, as an electrolyzer, it's the modulation of the load, which the ISO can use to help manage uh, frequency regulation. So it's different. It's different than a, um, uh, for example, a lithium-ion battery system would be um, would be you know, maybe charging and discharging, or a hydro plant would be ramping up or ramping down its power output, it's the modulation that provides frequency regulation and we do it as a load. I see, okay, cool. Um, and um, that's, and are you doing that on the transmission system or the distribution system? It's distribution connected at uh, 27.6 uh, kilovolts. Cool, wow. Um, and so the impetus of the project was to prove out uh, something that's you know got the infrastructure for ultimately a five megawatt project um, is the is the contract with ISO kind of enough or or ultimately the offtake of the fuel is really what sweetens the deal enough to see uh, repeatability of this? Yeah, I think uh, no, that's that's a that's a good point. I think for a demonstration project um, we're it's been fantastic to work with the ISO because we're not just um, we're not just the, the customer, but we get regular uh, feedback on the, the performance. And, mm. and you can have a demonstration plant, and if you don't have a you know a real operation, um, you're not you're not stretched as much. So we've learned a lot with the uh, the equipment and and running with this. Um, but I think if you look at large, so for for a demonstration project. To get started with the ISO contract is absolutely what we needed, and it's been fantastic. Um, if you look at a larger scale project, 
Um, a frequency regulation is an ancillary service. So if you're a hydro plant, um, your, main, your main purpose is to produce power and you have an ancillary service contract to produce frequency regulation. It's not your core business. Right. The core business for a main commercial plant will be producing renewable hydrogen. And the ancillary part, you could use some of the capacity to provide a regulation service um, as well. That's what we envision for, uh, for commercial applications. Um, you reminded me of something that I probably should have asked off the top. But um, when we talk about hydrogen, we talk about blue and green hydrogen, don't we? Yes. Can, can you give us and, a uh, definition of what that colors mean? Sure. Both blue and green hydrogen are um, considered clean or uh, very low carbon uh, hydrogen. A green hydrogen is, uh, is hydrogen that's produced from renewable sources um, using electrolysis is, is the main, uh, main avenue. Okay. You could also produce um, a green hydrogen from uh, uh, biomass and, and biogas uh, sources as well. I think um, the, and, and the difference with, uh, with blue hydrogen, blue hyd all, um, all hydrogen or most of the hydrogen in the world to date um, is, is produced by steam methane reforming. Okay. So it's a process using natural gas as the feedstock that liberates uh, carbon dioxide and produces um, hydrogen. In, in the case of blue hydrogen, it's a steam methane reforming process, but you've got a carbon, carbon capture and sequestration process at the back end that is taking that carbon dioxide and sequestering it. So it's zero emission, uh, source of zero emission hydrogen as well. And I think uh, both blue and green hydrogen are going to be important sources for building the hydrogen infrastructure in, in Canada. Cool. So the Enbridge project that we've been talking about, it would be a true green hydrogen project. Yes, it would be. Yeah, um, because uh, the Ontario grid, uh, electricity grid is very clean. Right. It's uh, you know 95% carbon free. Um, and so the case of doing it in Ontario, then the, the hydrogen that we produce is going to be 95% carbon free as well. So what happens today at that Enbridge facility with the green hydrogen that is produced? Is it is it pipeline injection already? Is it is it uh, compressed for fuel on uh, on uh, uh, mobility application? What's happening with it today? We're, we're, uh, today, right now, um, we have a small fuel cell, and some of the hydrogen is being stored and then used in the in the fuel cell. Um, Enbridge is uh, working on the, the second phase and um, a lot of the due diligence and design work um, is complete to do the blending and direct injection of that hydrogen into uh, Enbridge's natural gas grid. Cool. So this is, um, uh, this is obviously a, it's a big application and one that uh, uh, Enbridge and, and many other gas utilities in Canada are quite interested in. And um, we're, uh, working on it now and uh, looking looking forward to having that second phase uh, in place. Um, What's the status of the um, market for a compressed hydrogen in Canada as a, as a vehicle fuel? Like, you know, it's on one hand, you know, is it a build it and they will come kind of thing? Or, or do you need, like, it, it sometimes feels like it's a chicken and the egg with some of these things where, you want to you want to build these plants to make compressed hydrogen, but the demand's not there. The demand's not there because the fuel's not there. Like, what's the status of that in in Canada? Uh, yes, <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, you're no, you're absolutely correct. We're at the stage today um, in in Canada where you're looking at um, the initial fleet deployments to have both the vehicles and the fueling. And there's um, there's a couple of interesting ones there's uh, that that are in the you know in the works. I know in um, Alberta looking at uh, trucking between you know Edmonton um, and Calgary corridor. Mm. And there's been a lot of uh, a lot of interest and discussion in Ontario with uh, looking at uh, bus fleets, initial uh, deployments of say 10 fuel cell electric buses, and it's driven by the by the by the fleets, but you need to build the the fueling infrastructure at the same time because it just isn't there. So that's the stage we're at. So that if you want to be um, adopting the technology, you've got to look at the the fueling as well. What I think will happen over time, 
as the capacity builds, like facilities like Markham and others, um, you know, come on stream, there'll be more capacity for hydrogen and more sources for uh, hydrogen for fueling. And this infrastructure will be uh, will be built up. You know, initially at low volumes, you're talking about uh, gaseous uh, um, transport. Um, you could also, for for small scale, you could do electrolysis on on site to produce uh, produce hydrogen. When you look at larger fleets, um, your one uh, method is uh, liquefying uh, the hydrogen, a liquefaction process. So you're you're delivering 4,000 kilograms in a liquid tank car at a time uh, to to a site, and that is used to fuel fuel vehicles. And if you if you look even farther out. Um, what would it look like if we have a large-scale adoption of a hydrogen economy for both transport and for heat? It would be a pipelines, you know. Mm. So the challenge is that the infrastructure isn't free, and um, at this stage, where the initial fleet deployments, you're looking at both the vehicles and the fueling, um, and and really, it's uh, the the chicken and egg is a good uh, it's a good apt me metaphor. And the pipeline piece is so interesting, but the existing natural gas infrastructure technically isn't isn't like is there there's some of that that can happen but is there a limit either from a pipeline spec design perspective or upsetting the apple cart at the point of use uh, where you have you know gas natural gas applications that are now seeing uh, different fuels come in like why not just continue to leverage the existing natural gas uh, pipeline as a as a communic or not a communication but as a transportation device for hydrogen? Uh, you, you certainly can to a point, and I, I think the opportunity for um, blending um, renewable hydrogen into the, or blue hydrogen into the natural gas grid is um, um, is significant in its own right. As I mentioned, you can have targets uh, you know upwards of fifteen percent. Um, what we've seen in Europe, where they've done this, the standards range from 2% blending, uh, you know, as, as much as 10 as 10%. And uh, I understand in the UK, they've had some trials that have gone well beyond, uh, you know, 10% as well. Hmm. So just as a, an opportunity with in terms of decarbonizing natural gas using renewable hydrogen, that's an opportunity of you know of itself. The if you use, I think where you're in your example, if you're using the natural gas infrastructure to, um, to transport hydrogen at, at higher concentrations, there's still a cost at the other end to remove, liberate the hydrogen from the from the natural gas stream. So that hasn't been proven out as much. Mm. When I talk about pipelines, I'm actually talking about hydrogen pipelines. Right. Okay. We have hydrogen pipelines today um, in refinery space. One of the biggest uses of hydrogen today is in refineries for um, uh, cracking and for desulfurization of conventional fuels, and uh, there may be short pipelines to serve hydrogen, a hydrogen feed to uh, to those applications. Um, there is some opportunity you could line existing pipelines where appropriate to uh, to ship hydrogen, but um, that's why I say it's a much longer longer play. But if you imagine um, a hydrogen uh, infrastructure that could support large-scale amounts of, of vehicles and um, and heating as well um, the pipelines would would be the most uh, economical way to 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 serve it one of the things I should have mentioned Matt you know that people don't appreciate when they think about um, you know greening transportation or greening you know um, natural gas is just the scale of it you know the in, in terms of Ontario 20 percent of the end use of energy is electricity 35% is transport fuels and another 35% is gas for heating. So the magnitude of what's required to um, to make a big big difference in in uh, transport and heating is um, you know is significant. Yeah. So if you're really scaling up to do to do a transformation in a big way, we are going to need a lot of infrastructure to move hydrogen. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. You mentioned a couple of times there heating and I I lump because we come from serving a lot of industrial clients, I, I, I you know, I lump heating and 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 process needs kind of together there. And and so when we talk about you know electrification and, and things of that nature, you know, some of that will capture heating, but there's always going to be a, a need for you know medium pressure steam to drive a you know a, a tissue mill or to you know to do different things. 
do you see an application for this technology to convert, you know, if there are significant pressures for, you know, decarbonization, then you can do that with green hydrogen. Do we, do we see, um, you know, large steam boilers being converted to, to, to burn hydrogen? I mean, that's happening. I mean, that technology exists, but do you see a play for a, a hydrolysis either at the industrial or, or, you know, short of having its own pipeline, you know, some kind of liquid transportation. Do you see the industrial market adopting hydrogen in this way? Um, you're correct. There is, there is interest um, in that. I think um, it's, it's uh, part of it is the, the cost of doing that. And I think you've, you've, you've touched on Matt, what the, what the critical enabler will be is is storage, you know, of the hydrogen, um, because that's that's an expensive link. So, what I see happening with things like boilers, I think, would be the the, the natural gas system today has got the the advantage of significant storage um, capacity. You just sort of count on it; it's there. We've paid for it over time. Um, the the, uh, the the infrastructure's there is sort of decarbonizing the fuel. And um, I know that companies, um, in terms of boilers, I believe you can have you know, up to 100% uh, hydrogen, um, but blended fuels or boilers um, you know, are readily available. The same with uh, turbines. Um, Siemens and other companies are working on turbines to have higher and higher concentrations of, of hydrogen. And I think the, the evolution of this would be if you if you could, if the storage is there, you've got natural gas, you're increasing the blending proportion of hydrogen in the natural gas, you're decarbonizing. And over time, as the infrastructure of the hydrogen is sufficient, um, you could move to 100% hydrogen. Mm -hmm. But it's not gonna happen. To have a dedicated hydrogen resource, store it on site and then feed it, the, the, the cost, it, it's certainly the technology's ready, but the costs are high. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So what, I mean, if you had a magic wand or you were, uh, you know, premier or prime minister for a day, not that many of us would want that role, but, you know, what's what's one one thing that changes that, you know, causes a step function increase in in the adoption of, of you know, green hydrogen in, in our energy space? What's the big obvious, and maybe there isn't one, maybe there's five, but what's what's one of the big, Kind of obvious impediments to to the development of this market. Scale, really, and and it's it's scale for um, when you look at uh, companies like Cummings and we've got the, the 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 technology is there, it's proven, but in terms of electrolysis, you look at the the, the number of installations globally, you know, for for all companies, it's very very small. And you use lithium-ion batteries as an example earlier. You know what what has made the adoption? What's driven the adoption of lithium-ion batteries in mobility and in the uh, energy storage space has been production volumes, scale economies, and driving down the the cost curve. So, how, the question is, well, how do you get scale, right? If um, if the early adopters, you have early adopters, say for truck fleets or uh, commuter rail or things like that, um, they will pay the price and they'll help pave it. And I think we've seen in some other jurisdictions, if you could get supports so that if someone, um, an operator is interested and they have to replace a diesel vehicle anyway, they, they put up the funds for a diesel vehicle, but there are um, funding supports that make up the difference with a fuel cell electric vehicle and support on some of the fueling infrastructure. There are, there are operators out there today, many of them, that are, that are interested, to ready to take that plunge. Yeah, and by doing that with initial fleet deployments, and I'm talking in the order of you know 10 or 15 vehicles, hmm. not just a demonstration of one vehicle, but an initial fleet deployment, then you start that vir that virtuous cycle. You, you you the supply chain needs to develop. We need more investment in the supply chain. Um, costs will come down, and as costs come down, the adoption will will accelerate. So if there was a, a way to bridge that gap between you know the early adopters who are going to do it no matter what and and those who are kind of on the fence, if we could bridge that gap to push enough of them over the fence, then that market would kind of pull itself along. Is that kind of where you're where you're, where you're looking at it? That that's correct. And um, we've seen um, you know in um, in California they've got a program the HFIP 
program that helps provide those incentives. And we know that the uh, federally in, in Canada, um, there is uh, uh, a discussion and interest in supporting and sort of accelerate, like initiating that uh, initial adopters to um, to move this along. Mm. I think that the, con the concept's well understood. We need uh, we need some courage perhaps to to uh, to get moving on that. But once it once it starts, and and the, when you look at the thing with the, the transportation, it's not just coming up with a, a green solution and there's tremendous value in that it's coming up with a better solution mm. so if you've got if you're a, a bus rider on a bus and you're on a bus and it makes no noise and there's no emissions that's a better solution and it, in, in terms of the health benefits and taking uh, critical air contaminants out of the urban cores where where um you know uh, commuter buses and uh, delivery trucks work will improve we've got better health care uh, outcomes as well it's a better it's a better product it's a compelling it's a more expensive product today but if we can stimulate that demand and scale um, ultimately we see um, a line of sight to having a, a lower total cost of ownership for uh, fleet operators over time we're not there today but we can see with cost project cost projections and uh, and scale economies we can get there I love that notion of you know, not only a greener solution, but a better solution. And I think sometimes we we lose, we get so fixated on the green part that we lose sight of, you know, it's, it, it, and it's not always the case, but in many cases, it brings other practical quality of life um, benefits um, than just the greening of our energy supply, which don't, don't get me wrong, is extremely important. Um, so I'm glad you, I'm glad you drew that out there. Um, Rob, as we kind of wrap this up here, what, you know, you're now part of the big Cummins family um, and, you know, there's a, there's some significant opportunities that are coming with that. Um, but what, you know, but there's probably some, some expectations too that come with that. What, what is, you know, kind of where do you see um, hydrogenics going? Like what's the big focus area or what's the next six to 12 months you know, look like uh, what 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 gets you up and excited? You know, every day to to work on with with hydrogenics. Where where are you guys trending towards? Okay, the 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 work that we're doing in the, the same space, like the heavy duty mobility space and large scale electrolysis for renewable hydrogen, uh, really hasn't changed. Um, what's been um, what's been great about being part of Cummings now is that our capacity and reach has increased dramatically. Mm. Um, Little hydrogenics, we sort of grew by projects. You sort of did uh, product development. Well, you needed a project or you needed funding to uh, to move forward. Uh, now we can invest to uh, scale up and develop new products um, as a as a company because we have that we have that capacity being part of Cummings. And the other exciting thing really is we we're integrating into Cummings, um, you know, existing sales and customer service networks which stretch around the globe. Um, wow. So that's that's a big change in terms of the our outlook and, and how we're looking at the world and 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 how we can how we can work with it. I'll just highlight one one project that Please. I'm extremely excited about, and that's uh, a 20 megawatt electrolyzer plant that we're doing for Air Liquide in Baconcourt, Quebec. Hmm. And it's our new Highlyzer 1000 unit. It's uh, five megawatts, 22,000 kilogram per day per, uh, capacity. It's sort of the evolution of what we did at Markham in a in a full product platform. It's an indoor skidded solution with um, with high power density cell stack, and uh, we build it in the factory. We do the do the, um, the testing in the factory. We ship it on site, and it's connected on site. And um, at Cummings, we're really excited about the project and the, and to be working with Air Liquide. I mean, this is a this is a true commercial project with uh, mission critical applications uh, for Air Liquide. Is this sort of a, a hydrogen hub in Baconcourt? To serve its hydrogen customers, and it's uh, represents the maturing of the uh, of the product and a and a true commercial scale project. Wow, that's very cool. So that 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 project is real, and you guys are somewhere between you know inception and construction. Is that where you're at with that one? Um, that's that's right. We're in the process of uh, of, of shipping uh, shipping equipment now, and um, and construction will start soon. Cool. Well, yeah. I mean, the upside, you know, you got a big company in Cummins and a big company in Air Liquide. I mean, that's a there's some significant repeat potential there, right? Yes, absolutely. Cool. Well, hey, Rob, this has been really fun. I am uh, I am way uh, smarter for it, uh, and our listeners will be as well. And and you know, not to mention we've it's just been been kind of a fun conversation. So 
where can people find you if they want to know more about uh, Hydrogenics or Cummins or hydrolysis, power to gas, all this fun stuff? What's the best way to get a hold of you and the company? Well, the, the, the best way is uh, um, for the for the company is Cummings.com slash backslash hydrogen. And to reach me, uh, you can reach me at uh, my email, rharvey at hydrogenics.com. Cool. Well, Rob, thanks again. I really appreciate you doing this. And uh, this has been a, a fun conversation, educating and informative for sure. So uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Energy Radio. Uh, my name is Matt Lensink. I want to say a special thank you to Rob Harvey, our guest today from Hydrogenics. And also a special thanks to uh, our, our producer, Lisa Barber, and our man behind the glass, Mark Charbonneau. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again next time.